Matthew 22, 34 to 40 is our passage today. Let me give you a little bit of a background into what brings us to that point today. It is Tuesday of Passion Week. In Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem in the triumphant entry. On the first day of the week, on Sunday, he was hailed by the people. He fulfilled prophecy. He entered the temple. He declared it to be his father's, declared it to be his own house, and cleansed it of those who abused it. The next morning, Monday morning, he returned to Jerusalem from Bethany. On the way, he passed a, a fig tree that was fruitless, and he, he used it as a picture of faithless and fruitless Israel, and he cursed it. That act then set the stage for the chapters that follow, for the conversations with the leaders that we've been looking at, and for uh, the denouncement of the scribes and the Pharisees, and for the, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. All of it is, is flowing from the reality that Israel has not been faithful, that God is, is doing something, uh, as as one of the Old Testament prophets said, or the Lord said, he, he, in speaking of his judgment of his own people, he says, I'm doing a thing that you wouldn't believe if I told you. Jesus proceeded into the city at that point, into the temple. The chief priests and the Pharisee elders came to him and demanded to know by what authority he did the things he did. They refused to acknowledge the authority of John the Baptist, so he refused to simply bluntly tell them what his authority was, but he went on to show it and declare it through three parables that condemned their faithlessness and their wickedness. And then he told a fourth parable at the beginning of Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, where uh, he reveals that the utter rebellion and wickedness and hard-heartedness of the Jewish people will not stop God from populating his kingdom by his sovereign will. He's not waiting on the line and hoping that sinners will do him a favor. Rather than being humbled by Jesus' authority, by his words and by the truth of what he said, and then appealing to God for mercy, uh, th these wicked leaders of Israel then uh, launch a, a, a multi-phased attack against the Lord Jesus. The chief priests and the elders of the people come and, and or I'm sorry, the, the Pharisees come and uh, ask a question of Jesus that's supposed to stun him into immobility. Should I pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? For them, that, that was, there's there no good answer to that question. If you said no, you were rebel, a rebel against the Roman Empire. If you said uh, I'm sorry, yes, and if you said yes, you're, you're a rebel against the people of Israel. Well, Jesus had the perfect answer. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. The Pharisees were stunned into silence, and they left. The Sadducees then came. Uh, they made their attempt to disprove Jesus, to, to knock him down, to show that they were superior. Their approach was to, was to create a, a silly image in order to disprove the resurrection. And they failed to do that. They left speechless, stunned, amazed, no, no response. The Pharisees now have come back 
<coughs> they've got an even better plan than what they have before they think. Let's pray and then we'll look at it. Lord, it's just inconceivable to us and yet so understandable that people would come and challenge Jesus and reject him and think that they had the question that he could never answer and to think somehow that he was subject to their wisdom or to their curiosity. Please help us as we look at these words this morning to learn from them, to be encouraged by what Jesus tells them, even as they rejected his words. We thank you in Jesus' precious name for this. Amen. So it begins with a test. When the Pharisees heard, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that uh, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They probably had another conversation as they did earlier. And one of them, a scholar of the law, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Let me give you a little, ba- little bit of background. A scholar in the law, some translations call him a lawyer, Uh, He was not a legal expert, and he was not a theologian. He was not an expert in the doctrines of of the Old Testament. He was an expert in the, the Pharisee rabbinical system, the oral traditions that they said went back to the time of the return from Babylon. When the Pharisees, when the people had returned from Babylon, the the obvious issue in Israel was idolatry. throwing God off of his throne and replacing him with with Baal or Asherod or one of the other national gods. And they determined this must never happen again. And so they, they were really the first Methodists. They developed a methodical system for the worship of God that was going to guarantee that they never again worshipped another god by name. And, and they didn't. They didn't. Those oral traditions... Uh, were not put down in written form until the third century. They remained oral. And so learning them was years of study with rabbis who had learned them prior. The whole point was to create practices in detail that were to be followed by the Jewish people as binding upon them. They did a, a tremendous job at it from one point of view, Jesus says in chapter 23, verse 4, And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much of a fing- as, as a finger. They, they create these, these detailed, miserable systems and then dump them on somebody and they're unwilling to lift them. You're on your own. I, I've spoken before a few times about the way that they treated the Sabbath. Let me give you a different example today having to do with the Feast of Booths. Leviticus 23 commands the people of Israel to observe the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, it's known, or Sukkot, it's known, which is for the Hebrew word for a booth or a hut, uh, to observe that on an annual basis, just as they were to observe Passover on an annual basis, which was a, a remembrance of being delivered from Egypt The Feast of Booths was a remembrance that God kept them in the wilderness, that he provided for them, that he was their shelter. (coughs) 
Leviticus 23 and the rest of the scriptures contain, and I counted, exactly zero instructions on how to build a booth. You're just living a booth for a week, seven days. That's it. Build a booth, live in it. That's what it says. The rabbis, by Jesus' time, had produced almost 2,000 words, 125 lines, defining what the booth was. And they considered this to be binding before God. So, just to start it out, a booth which is taller than 30 feet is invalid. Uh, Oh, but Rabbi Judah says it's okay. A booth which is not at least 15 feet tall have three walls or allows more light than shade is not valid. Rabbi Shammai says you can't use an old booth. But Rabbi Hillel says, sure, go ahead, use it. What is an old booth? It's any booth made 30 days or more before the festival. Unless you made it for the festival. And then that, that's okay, even if you made it the previous year. Clear? We got all that? We got Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Shammai, Rab, Rabbi Hillel, who are arguing and debating over different things. Who do you follow? When you go to build your booth and one Pharisee comes along and says, that's only 12 feet high, it has to be 15 feet high. Rabbi Shammai says it's got to be 15 feet high. And you say, but Rabbi Hillel says it can be that high. And then you've got this constant argument. The man who approached Jesus that day was was an expert in these arguments. He didn't come with an honest purpose or an open purpose. He came to test Jesus. Matthew Treats us as children. I appreciate that. He doesn't make us guess. He tells us he came to test Jesus. That word means to tempt, to entice, to uncover somebody. Whenever it's used in the Gospels, with one exception, it's used in a negative way regarding Jesus. Jesus himself, in John chapter 6, tests Philip. Jesus looked and saw the crowd that was gathering on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And it says, he tested Philip, asking, where should we buy food for them? Knowing what he was going to do. He tested Philip. He's not testing and tempting Philip to sin. He's saying, do you know who I am yet? Do you trust me yet? Would you ask me to produce this? And Philip, of course, says there's not enough money to feed them. Philip fails the test. Philip assumes a natural answer. So the scholar of the law comes to Jesus, testing him, asking, which is the great commandment in the law? What what is he hoping to achieve by this? The rabbis had determined that there are 613 laws in the Torah. 248 uh, were, were positive, 248 supposedly being the number of bones in the human body. 365 were negative, 365 days. 613 laws. Some were affirmative, you shall, and some were negative, you shall not. Some were heavy laws, you cannot 
violate this absolutely under any condition. Some were light laws. Eh. Eh. And then they argued constantly about which one was dominant, which one is more important. If you're faced with the Sabbath and somebody who's sick, what do you do? Can't work on the Sabbath. Treating an injury is work. So you can't do the kind of work that would heal them. That would be work, but you can prevent it from getting worse. That's not healing. That's only stabilizing. You can do that. You can bandage a wound on the Sabbath to keep it from getting worse, but you can't bandage it if your purpose is to get it better. That would be work. That's what they did all the time. And now they want to engage Jesus in this kind of thing. Jesus answers with the simplicity of the law of God. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. Verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The great and foremost commandment of the law is one they already knew. They already had it memorized. It's part of the daily quoting of the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that means here. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and, four and 5. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. When we take Matthew and Mark and Luke, Matthew and Mark, we're looking at the Septuagint, the Greek translation. We end up with, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <coughs> I love the practicality of our God. He covers every aspect of humanity in the words heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's not a part of you that's excluded from that. So if, if you were making notes, you could write out the question, should I love God with fill in the blank? And before you've even asked the question, I can tell you the answer is yes. You don't need to go into the details. They love to go into the details. Jesus said, there's no need to do that. Should I love God? Yes. Should I love him with? Yes. With my affections? Yes. With my emotions? Yes. With my will? Yes. With my possessions? Yes. With my relationships? Yes. With my energy? Yes. With my hopes? Yes. With my dreams? Yes. Everything. There's nothing that's excluded at all. That's why it is the great and foremost commandment of the law. Some, some translations, by the way, say first. The, the word there is one of priority, not chronology. It was not the first law written in scripture, but it is the foremost law. And then Jesus isn't done. He's answered the scholar's question, but there's more to the answer. The second commandment, there is a second commandment that's very much like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus is quoted from Deuteronomy 6 for the great and foremost commandment. Now he quotes from Leviticus 19 regarding the second commandment. It's part of a series of verses, a brief series. And I want to read that passage to you because the passage reveals how these commands are interlinked. 
starting in verse 11, Leviticus 19.11, you shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another and you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. I hope that sounds like the Ten Commandments to you because that's what it's referencing. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired man shall not remain with you overnight until morning. That was a time when people worked a day to buy food for the next day. So when somebody worked, you paid them immediately so that they could take care of themselves. You shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in judgment. Think about this next phrase in light of today. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Nobody gets an advantage because they've got money or influence. Nobody has an advantage because they have no money. Everybody gets justice. But you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you may surely reprove your neighbor and so not bear sin because of him. That's interesting. We're not allowed to hate. But we, we're not commanded to stay silent either. Reproving somebody in their sin is not hatred. It's love because we're appealing to them to be restored to their God. You shall not take vengeance and you shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. See, if you love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself naturally follows. In fact, by necessity it follows. Loving your neighbor as yourself has nothing to do with your affection. It has everything to do with treating them with honesty, integrity, and justice. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 10, when the scholar comes and asks Jesus, what is the great commandment? Jesus gives him that answer. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. And the man, it says in Luke, trying to justify himself, says, oh, but who's my neighbor? See, these are Pharisees. They want to dissect that. And they, they want to do it for exactly the same reason you want to do it to show that they've been obedient where they've been obedient and excuse their disobedience where they've been disobedient. Jesus goes on to tell the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans were uh, half-breeds, half-Jews, half-Assyrian. When the northern kingdom, Israel, was taken captive by Assyria, Assyrian colonists settled in the area. And you can take a people captive, but that doesn't mean that you get absolutely every one of them rooted out of the hills. They took the majority 
but they left others and they intermarried and they created the Samaritan. Uh, the Samaritan group came out of that. They had their own religious beliefs. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. If you look in John chapter four, read about the Samaritan woman at the well. The woman at the well says to Jesus, uh, our people worship on this mountain. They're standing in Sychar. If you went to Sychar, you could look to the west and see Mount Gerizim. And you can see the temple that's still up there. There's still Samaritans in the world, in Israel. They still worship up there. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. They hated each other. So you can just use your life experience and where you've come from, where you've lived, what you've experienced, and you could pick the group, the group that you that you just we won't say hate, will we? Because that's not the right thing to say. The group that you distrust, the group that, you, that you're suspicious of the most, the group that you're least likely to give the benefit of the doubt to. And Jesus says, that's your neighbor. So really at the time, there's about 200 million people living in the world. What Jesus says to this man in Luke is, theoretically, any one of those people would be your neighbor if he has a need and he's within your reach to meet that need. There's 7.9 billion people on the earth today. Any one of them potentially is your neighbor. They simply have to have a need and be within your reach. And they're, they're your neighbor. But Jesus still isn't done. He says that these two commandments are dominant. Verse 40, on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. <coughs> the great and foremost commandment, is to love Yahweh with with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law of God and every word of the prophets hangs from these. So Jesus doesn't say they're founded on them. He doesn't describe a, a foundation. I can I can take a pen and, and let the pulpit be a foundation for it. Or I can remove the pulpit and let the floor be a foundation, but no matter what, the pen sits on something. But Jesus says, everything hangs from these two. If you remove them, they no longer exist. If you remove the great and first commandment, if you remove the, the, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, You've eliminated the anchor for the rest of the law and the prophets of God. If there was no command to love God with all of our being, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then there, there would be no basis for a commandment to worship him alone, the first commandment. Or to make no graven images of him, the second commandment. Or to not take his name in vain, the third commandment. Or to keep his Sabbath holy, the fourth commandment. If we were not commanded to love our neighbor as ourself, then there would be no basis for honoring your parents, for not murdering, not committing adultery, for not stealing, not lying, not coveting what other people own. It's, it's not just that these two commandments come first in the scriptures. They, they exist because of the character and nature of God. And every law of the Old Testament, every moral law of the Old Testament, and every, uh, every, every word spoken by the prophets comes by necessity 
from those. Now, I want you to understand the difference between comes naturally from and comes by necessity from. We love our grandkids. We love our grandkids. And so naturally, when they want to spend the night, they can spend the night. But see, naturally says it could be or not be. What Jesus says is the whole law and the prophets come by necessity from those two. See, if you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you must worship him alone. You must give his name all of its dignity and honor. You must not make images of him. You must keep his day holy. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you must honor people with the honor due them. You must protect all life. You must preserve your own and your neighbor's chastity. You must defend and preserve the rights and the property of each person. Promote and maintain the truth. Be content with your possessions in an attitude of charity. You must. They're necessary. These commandments don't possess authority because they're written in ink. They, com- they, they possess authority because they arise from the nature and the character of God. He alone is worthy of our faith and our obedience. And, and therefore, we are to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has created mankind as, in his image. And therefore, I must love you as I love myself, I must recognize the image of God in which you are made and grant that image its fullness of dignity and honor without violating the first and great commandment. Cancel those commandments. Erase them. Erase God from culture and society. Consider human beings to be nothing more than animals, just evolutionary chemical accidents. And what do you have? you have our world as it is today. You have a world that's full of blasphemy and mockery toward God, a a world where death and perversion are celebrated and now even mandated in places. On Twitter, I, I followed the National Weather Service Omaha office, which is good. I suggest that you do that. If there's a weather issue going on, they'll, they'll get warnings out. Periodically, they send up weather balloons, and they'll, they'll post about it. Sometimes they'll post a picture or a video. So a weather balloon is a, is a, is a big balloon, six or eight feet across. It, it carries a small instrument package, and they just release it, and it goes up, and the instruments send back information. As that balloon rises in the sky, it expands. There's less pressure to hold it in. And the balloon expands and expands and expands until it just can't expand anymore, and it blows And then the whole thing just falls to the earth. The morality of mankind is just a weather balloon. They say what we're going to do is we're going to value this. This is the high value. This is the important thing. And they release it and it goes and it gets bigger and bigger and it gets more press and it's in the paper more and people talk about it more. And then what happens? It blows. Has it been just three years since the Me Too movement? Four years? When was the last time you saw that filling the headlines? It doesn't. It blew. What about homosexual marriage? 
it, it, it expanded at Burgerville fast. It just, it just went up, and now nobody talks about it anymore. It just blew. Transgenderism is on the rise. It's going to blow. Men competing in women's sports is on the rise. It's going to blow. Why? Because it's, it's not descendant from anything. It's not anchored to anything. What we have in the law and the prophets is anchored to these two great commandments with a massive titanium chain. What they have are just balloons anchored with threads and anything can destroy it, but it's not a problem. They'll just find something else to put their hopes in. There's something interesting about youth and and there's no hard and fast line where you get this and I'm confident in our young people that they, they've already got this because of the wisdom that I see in them. But there's a pride in youth that comes from really never having failed. You assume you can succeed in anything because you've never failed. But as you get older and you fail, as you let people down, as you're, you're not able to do it, as you thought you could and you promised you would, but you, you fell through, as all those things happen... We, we start to diminish. We just start to feel the weakness of our own souls. And at that point, we're at a crisis. And there's only, there's only two things we can do. We can either redefine morality and redefine what it means to be a, a man or a woman in such a broad way that we've already succeeded and we don't have to worry about it. Or we can accept what scripture says. We can go through the narrow gate and walk a narrow road that says, yes, I'm a sinner. I fail. I had somebody in a different church ask me a few years ago why every Sunday the gospel is foremost. And I said, because I'm a sinner and I need the gospel every day. I need it every day. Being born again, being converted is not the end of this life. It's just the beginning of this life. And we progress through that life through the very same message that saved us. I suppose one day we could, we could take a, a survey and when everybody here has absolute deep-rooted assurance and no questions at all, we can move on to something else. But as long as we continue to come into church thinking, oh man, I blew it this week. I blew up morally. Or I didn't trust. I took matters in my own hand. And just like Abraham, just like Moses, it just blew up. As long as we do that, we need the gospel. We need the reminder that we've come through a narrow gate onto a narrow road. The devil is going to tell you, if you come through a narrow gate onto a narrow road, you've got a narrow end. You're going to get to the pearly gates. Remember pearly gates? There's pearly gates up there. And you're going to meet St. Peter at the pearly gates. You know what he's going to do? He's going to look at you critically. He's going to ask you questions about your morality and your good works. And if you happen to make it in, he's going to grab you and he's going to shove you through a keyhole. You're barely going to make it in. But Peter says that there is prepared for us an abundant entrance. The narrow gate and narrow road leads to an abundant entrance. So at the crisis point where where we're tempted to play word games with these scriptures, 
although it's impossible. I love God with all of my heart. How about your mind? What do you put there? How about your body? What do you do with your body? How about your strength? Is your energy and your vitality put in serving him and honoring him? Well, but I, I, I love him with all my heart. Yeah, you're not making it. I love my neighbor about, I love my neighbor as myself. What about that person? Well, not her. Good grief. Do you know who she is? Do you know what she's done? Not those people. You know what they want to do. When you're convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin, when those things come in, don't start looking for ways to justify what you've done. Don't do that. Don't do that. Accept it. Embrace it. Don't fight the conviction of the Spirit of God. Humble yourself under his mighty hand, Peter says, and he will exalt you in due time. You know what I'm quick to do? Here's a confession for you. Humble yourself under. This is the very first sermon I ever preached 30 some odd years ago, still in school. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. It matches up with the psalm where David says, Lord, you are my shield um, and my, my glory and the lifter of my head. When my head's been bowed down by my shame and by my failure, you know what I want to do? I want to grab it and lift it up. And Peter says, don't. Don't lift your own head. Let God lift your head. Confess your sin. Repent. Trust in the gospel. Trust in what Jesus has done. Let him lift your head. Let him lift your head. So you can do this without fear of rejection or judgment from God. He knows the frailty of your life. He knows that you're marked by sin. He sent his son to live a sinless life. Jesus has already loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's already done that. And when you are justified, you receive credit for that just as though you'd always done it. You walk into the heavenly places in prayer and some of us just don't, we're just not willing to even lift our head because we're so filled with the awareness of our own sin. But Jesus has wrapped you in his righteousness, which means you've loved the Father with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength already. Jesus did it for you because you couldn't do it. And then he died on the cross to take away your guilt and sin and to satisfy the righteous judgment of God. So from a negative point of view, everything against you has been answered on the cross. And in a positive sense, everything God requires for you has been granted to you in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. He sent his son to bear his judgment against you so that you could rejoice as his child in joy and freedom, that you could be dressed in the righteousness of Christ, cleansed by his blood, filled by his spirit, guided by his word. And though you walk a narrow road, to know that at the end of that road, it opens up heaven wide to an abundant entrance. Father, we thank you for your love for us. What a blessing it is to know that Jesus not only died for us, but that he lived for us. That we are not only washed clean, but by his blood. 
<coughs> we are dressed in his righteousness. Viewed and seen by you as though we had lived his life. You know what, Lord? We don't really believe that. We have to be taught moment by moment by you. I think it's rare for any Christian to actually get get off of that first step. So help us through your word and by the power of your spirit. Not to pretend that we have lived rightly, not to pretend that we have no sin. To freely acknowledge those things because Jesus lived it for us. And his blood has cleansed us. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of your mercy, we are right with you. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our world is floating free and chaotic. Anchor us to your word. Anchor us to the great and foremost commandment. Anchor us to the second commandment that is like it so that we can be anchored to you, that we can have the confidence of how to live in this world. We don't have to make it up with every, every passing day. And having been freed from the need to justify ourselves and work for our own salvation, we can both enjoy and celebrate what you have given us and then freely take that message to others. Fill our hearts with the gospel, Lord, because we need it every day and fill our mouths with it every day because our world needs it so desperately. We thank you for this time today. Would you send us as your servants, send us as your children who love you and honor you in every way. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We are dismissed.